Hi everyone, welcome to Making Sense of Tech Law with me, Andrew Lane. Today's episode is one I'm really excited about, I guess because one of the best things about podcasting is simply following my interests, where they lead, and talking to people who have a lot of interesting things to say about the things I'm interested in too. Today's topic is social media regulation. Sort of similar to February's episode with Professor Lorna Woods on the UK's online arms bill. But today we're taking a slightly different angle and looking at the Facebook Oversight Board and its interactions with international human rights law. In particular, in regards to one of its biggest characters, social media's biggest characters, should I say, one of its biggest beneficiaries or one of its biggest uh, burdens. (laughs) whatever your political persuasion, Donald Trump. And with me to talk about his recent ban from Facebook is Susan Benish. Susan is firstly an incredible interviewee, so fun to talk to, (laughs) perhaps, perhaps because of her past in journalism. And she founded and currently directs the Dangerous Speech Project, which aims to study speech that can inspire violence and find ways to prevent it without infringing on freedom of expression. So a really interesting carve-out in the free speech, hate speech debate. Originally, uh, Susan trained as a human rights lawyer at Yale and is also currently a faculty associate of the Berkman Klein Centre for Internet and Society at Harvard. The final thing to mention is We actually recorded this interview before the final suspension of the account of Donald Trump for a period of two years, which was announced on the 5th of June. So we're going to be exclusively talking about the 5th of May decision to uphold Facebook's ban of the former president after the events of the 6th of January insurrection. I hope you enjoy the discussion and don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Susan, thank you so much for agreeing to take part in Making Sense of Tech Law today. One of the things I love the most actually about the pandemic time is getting to speak to people on the other side of the Atlantic. And um, I guess the where I wanted to start with this was just kind of reaching super broadly as to what are we talking about when we talk about international human rights law? What kind of instruments, what kind of courts are we referring to in relation to what we're going to perhaps apply to social media? I'm so glad you asked that, Andrew. This idea of applying international human rights law for content moderation uh, by tech companies sprouted several years ago and has bloomed quite quickly and is now being discussed by many people without the sort of clarification that you've requested. In other words, people say, yes, yes, international human rights law. But that is uh, quite a big octopus with many tentacles. The relevant law is really a series of treaties that have been signed and ratified by lots of countries around the world. The one that, that is the main source for law on speech and when it may be restricted and under what circumstances is called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It is one of the the big three uh, basic documents in international human rights law. One is the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the UDHR, 
The other is this ICCPR, which is the political and civil rights, generally speaking. And then there's another treaty that is on economic, social, and cultural rights. So the one that is central for speech regulation is the ICCPR. And in Article 19, it declares freedom of expression and also directs governments, which are usually the bodies that are regulated by international human rights law. So this treaty directs governments that have agreed to abide by it to respect and protect freedom of expression and also tells them when and, and, and in what circumstances they may infringe the freedom of expression of their people. Uh, what is interesting about that clause, which is Article 19.3, is that it doesn't try to tell governments, for example, that they may or may not prohibit depictions of violence, let's say, or nudity or obscenity, which are all categories that governments um, often do prohibit. Instead, that piece of international human rights law tells them uh, really two things. One is for what reasons they may limit the exercise of freedom of expression. Reasons like public health and morals, national security, and the maintenance of public order. So in other words, there are only very limited reasons why governments under international human rights law are allowed to prohibit certain kinds of expression. And the second kind of guidance that this provision of law gives the governments is that any restriction must be necessary, which has been understood to mean it has to be the smallest possible restriction to achieve the desired result. So let's say if you're trying to protect national security, you have to find the way to restrict speech that will protect national security, but restrict speech as little as possible while, while achieving that. And then there's another principle called legality. So when a government restricts speech, it must make sure that that restriction, those rules or that law, it has already been well explained to the people who are going to be governed under it and so forth. So uh, some people have, have said that uh, international human rights law really sets out procedures for regulating speech rather than specific substantive rules for which speech to restrict. So, so that's a somewhat rapid description of what happens in the ICCPR. It is, however, not the only treaty that directs governments about which speech they may prohibit and under what circumstances. There's another, there's another big treaty called the International Covenant on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, or CERD, as it's often nicknamed. CERD directs governments or states, as, as they're often called in international law, um, to prohibit, roughly speaking, discriminatory speech. And uh, many people think that that's a lower bar. In other words, that it, that it would require states to prohibit or allow states to prohibit uh, much more speech than the ICCPR would. But the international lawyers who are officially appointed by the UN to figure these things out say that there is no contradiction between CERD and the ICCPR. Right. It's actually so useful to have the real overview of 
really what we're dealing with in terms of the law here. You mentioned that often it's states and governments that are... This law was made... Yeah, right. ...by governments for governments. And this is one of the points that I have been making. I, I don't know if you've seen, I, I published a piece a few months ago in the Yale Journal on Regulation, grumbling a little bit, saying, listen, yes, in theory, it's a great idea to apply this international human rights law, but hang on a second, it was made by governments for governments, not for use by private corporations. If private corporations are to use it, it has got to be interpreted and adapted. For example, one of those five bases that I mentioned uh, in Article 19.3 that are the only permissible bases for restricting speech is national security. You surely don't want Facebook making decisions, making content moderation decisions based on national security. Facebook doesn't have its own national security, I, I, I want to assure you. And surely it must not make decisions uh, based on the national security of the UK or the United States or Myanmar or any other country. That would be highly improper. Um, so there, there, there has to be, a, a, in order to avoid a bad graft, if you like, uh, that law must be explained and interpreted for this new use, in my view. Oh, hang on. Although I went on and on, I omitted another very important piece of international human rights law that is absolutely essential for all of this. There was some, some uh, tremendous debate, in fact, at, at different points over the last many decades regarding corporations and human rights law and practice, regarding especially corporations that had so much power in specific countries, in specific parts of the world, and often used it in collaboration with governments that led to appalling violations of people's human rights. One example would be oil companies operating in the Niger Delta in ways that, uh, that led to the deaths of human rights activists and people who were simply trying to protect their own land and their lives and their families' lives. After some back and forth and study by the UN, a panel of experts came up with what are now called the United Nations Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights. The UNGPs. Those are, as the, as, as the name uh, suggests, principles, not law. They indicate or direct, if you like, that corporations take human rights law and principles into consideration as they make their decisions, that they adhere as much as possible to international human rights law, that they do so According to, to certain specific principles, for example, as you might imagine, the bigger and more powerful the company, the greater its capacity to pay attention to, to human rights law in detail and, and adhere to it. So the principles suggest that different companies have different levels of obligation to adhere to human rights law according to their capacity to do so. So Susan, then we have the ICCPR and the UNGDP. GP, anti-discrimination treaty, which has a... So how does this framework of law apply itself to the issue of content moderation on social media? How can, how can it work? That's just the question. Or rather, that is the question which suggests a number of other very interesting and important questions. One of which is, would companies have to 
voluntarily subscribe to the relevant treaties, which after all is what governments have to do. Since these are treaties which are sort of rough analog of, of a contract in domestic law, a treaty is generally considered binding on a government only after that country's government or that state has signed and ratified the treaty. Treaties like the ICCPR have been signed and ratified by so many countries. In the case of the ICCPR, I think it's something like 190 countries that they can come to be considered a customary law, which means law that is so very widely accepted and practiced that it is considered to be binding on everybody. However, when governments sign and ratify a treaty like the ICCPR, they also often introduce what are called reservations, which means they say, okay, we're ratifying, but not this part and not that part and also not that other part and not that part. Uh, the United States has, for example, ratified numerous treaties, even the Genocide Convention, another important international human rights treaty, uh, with various reservations saying, yes, but not this and this and this and this. So uh, would there or should there be such a process for companies is an important question that hasn't been considered very much. Of course, there are, there are pros and cons to, to voluntary ratification or signing up, if you like. Um, one con is that, is that you end up with this patchwork of reservations, you know, in which each ratifying body says, yes, but, with lots of buts in some cases. On the other hand, maybe they're more likely to comply, to take it seriously, if they've actually signed up, if they've actually agreed uh, to take part. Um, the UNGPs, those principles, by contrast, are um, uh, less specific, less binding, um, but nobody has to sign up to them. After all, they were made for businesses. They were intended for corporations in contrast to the other to the treaties that I mentioned. Right. So we have a selection of treaties, namely the UNGP, which is only perhaps a set of principles. The ICCPR, which is not explicitly aimed at corporations and private sector companies. Why would we go down the route of human rights law when perhaps some kind of domestic regimes in competition law, tort law, or all these different kinds of avenues would perhaps be more... More toothy. Toothy, yeah. That's a great yeah. word. <laughs> um, and it's a great question. I don't think it needs to be one or the other. International human rights law is notoriously lacking in enforcement, frankly. There are courts in the international human rights law universe. However, in general, they, they allow for prosecution of individuals, of proceedings against states, not so much corporations. Very generally speaking, in the movement for increased uh, enjoyment of, of human rights, courts and prosecution, in other words, legal teeth, have not been uh, anywhere near as prominent as what has often been called naming and shaming. Describing and publicizing egregious violations of human rights to try to shame states and sometimes corporations into doing better. And I think when we're speaking about applying international human rights law to tech companies' uh, content moderation, shaming would be more effective than attempting to enforce that law 
with civil or, or, or criminal legal proceedings. And the shaming sounds maybe very toothless. However, it isn't. We have already seen some companies taking on international human rights law principles and, and beginning to apply them. And Facebook's oversight board, that is this independent body that Facebook has recently set up and to which it refers, to which it refers some decisions and to which it has given some power, refers extensively to international human rights law in its decisions and seems to be relying quite heavily on that. That's an excellent example, exactly where we want to go with this. So obviously, the Facebook oversight board sort of emerged I guess, from a vacuum of the nervousness of nations to to jump in and, and regulate. And so this sort of move towards some kind of self-regulation, a quasi-Supreme Court, I know it's, it's been called. Zuckerberg called it the Supreme Court. Right, yeah. And then <laughs> and then was told to stop and doesn't call it that so much anymore, but the yeah. moniker stuck to some extent. Yes. So it, it, was, it was really interesting that the way that they discussed the human rights standards in the judgment itself, but almost as a sort of secondary sort of assessment over and above their own values and their own sort of code of conduct. Just to be clear, I think you must be talking about the Trump decision, right? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly. The, yeah. the Oversight Board has uh, already issued quite a few decisions in its maiden state, in its, in its early days. Uh, yeah. But of course, the Trump decision is far and away the, the best known and the most read and so forth. And yeah, they, they did rely on, if you like, Facebook's own internal, what could we call it, a set of principles. Yeah, exactly. Their, their five values, their community rules, et cetera. Um, however, until just recently, the companies, the tech companies made their decisions um, overwhelmingly based on the internal rules that they had cooked up and that by the way for quite a long time they kept principally to themselves so for a long time for example facebook published what it called its community i think community guidelines community standards um, but the version that was public was only a, a very vague general version the version that is actually used to decide which posts to leave up and which ones to take down is a far, far more detailed and wordy document. It is still secret, um, but Facebook now, beginning a couple of years ago, has published a, a somewhat more detailed version of its, of its own rules um, and, and made it public. And of course, the oversight board uh, referred quite a lot to that. Yeah, so to, to focus in on the on the Trump decision, what were your thoughts on the decision? Do you think that they got the right balance between whether they found Facebook to have acted correctly, but then also sort of casting doubt on various other sort of things that, that Facebook had been doing? Hmm. Yes and no. For one thing, they made a fool of me and some of my colleagues because we were expecting them to decide either that Facebook had um, made a mistake in taking Trump down and then the board would have reinstated him. I thought that was extremely unlikely. Or I thought um, 
the board would make Facebook's indefinite ban on Trump permanent. Due to a, an embarrassing lack of imagination, I thought that the decision would be one of those two. Those were the obvious alternatives. The board, I must say, quite ingeniously came up with uh, something completely different, which was, um, in fact, to behave uh, very much the way courts often do and to refuse to make the decision itself. Instead, it kicked that back to Facebook and directed Facebook to make that decision within six months. And then in a, an advisory note, it made a series of, of recommendations to Facebook saying, Facebook, you really ought to do this and this and this and this and that. Those are, uh, it's a good list, I think. Um, and unfortunately, from my point of view, Facebook isn't obliged to do those things. I am very disappointed in the decision in one respect, which is that it doesn't say anything about the reason why Trump was obviously banned. Um, but neither Facebook nor the board has recognized that. Here's what I mean. Trump was obviously banned because of the riot at the US Capitol on January 6th, because he posted and said lots and lots of things that encouraged um, some very angry and highly armed people to come to Washington DC and break their way into the US Capitol with intent to do some, some real personal damage to some of the legislators inside it, of course, was shocking. The Facebook Oversight Board's decision, like Facebook's own decision on January 7th to indefinitely suspend Trump, is based on only two Facebook posts that Trump put up on January 6th in the afternoon, long after the riot was already underway. You will surely remember at least one of them. It was a video that Trump made after many people implored him to tell the rioters to stop. So he made a, in my view, preposterous video in which um, he said, he told them to go home. He also told them that he loved them using the royal we, we love you. And he said, you're very special. It was for that, for telling them he loved them and that they are very special, that Facebook ostensibly banned him. Facebook has one among, among its many internal rules is one on dangerous individuals and organizations. <clears throat> and part of that rule prohibits praising people who are dangerous. And in Facebook's view and in the oversight board's view, that's what Trump did when he told those people that he loves them and that they're special. I have no argument with that, but it's so far beside the point. What really mattered and the real reason why Facebook banned Trump and in my view should have banned him is not that he told the rioters that he loved them. It's that he very clearly encouraged them to come to Washington DC heavily armed with, with detailed, explicit plans to commit terrible violence. Facebook and the board both ducked and chose not to try to do the hard work of analyzing Trump's posts before January 6th, which is when he actually 
in my view, clearly incited violence. Trump posted and tweeted in the middle of December of last year an invitation to his followers to come to Washington, D.C. and attend his rally. And he used this language. It will be wild. It will be wild. That is, of course, no kind of explicit call to violence. He never told them, come and smash your way into the Capitol or come and try to hang Mike Pence or, or um, do any of the other horrible things that they plan to do to Nancy Pelosi, for example. However, this is the key point. As soon as Trump tweeted and posted, it will be wild, come to January again, or come to Washington and then it will be wild. As soon as he did that, there were thousands of responses online, including, for example, on a, um, a forum that was a subreddit until they got kicked off of Reddit called The Donald. On that forum, thousands of people responded uh, saying, for example, we've got marching orders, boys, and I'm bringing my guns, what about you? And then they went on to describe their plans specifically for attacking the, the Capitol and the people inside it in gruesome detail. Uh, so there is absolutely no question in, in my view that Trump did incite violence. Um, Facebook, like the other uh, tech platforms, that, tech companies that, that banned him right after January 6th, does prohibit incitement to violence. But they defined it only if you like, in the rear view mirror, only by waiting for the violence to happen. If that's your method for content moderation, if that's your way of reacting to content that incites violence, there's no point in prohibiting incitement. If you wait until the violence happens in order to retrospectively define incitement, why are you bothering to prohibit incitement in the first place? Well, yeah, it doesn't get at all to the to the systemic problems that have built up to that to that moment. I feel like in terms of regulating content now, we're sort of past this like publisher platform debate. Are they responsible? Are they not? That was kind of past the boat about whether they should take things down. And They didn't take anything down though until after January 6th. Except for, I, I think um, Facebook, if I remember correctly, took down a detail of a Trump post for egregious COVID disinformation, but they didn't take down any of his content in which he utterly falsely claimed to have won the election, nor did they take down any of the content that uh, encouraged violence. So do you think that that's a problem with this method of sort of self-regulation? The fact that these companies are so, I mean, of course, they're commercial organizations, but they're driven as well by a need to boost content that works and downgrade content that doesn't work. And the whole sort of surveillance capitalism thing, is it possible that because they're so wrapped up in that whole business model that these kind of approaches to self-regulation are never really going to work because they're always going to come too late? Yes. The short answer is yes. I hesitate to say never, of course. I think there are at least two reasons why the tech companies generally allowed Trump to do whatever he wanted, with, with just a few exceptions. Twitter did, in May of last year, add a note to a tweet in which Trump said, when the, when the looting starts, when the shooting, looting starts, the shooting starts. You'll remember that one. 
in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests. But for the most part, they, they, they let him do whatever he wanted. And of course, he did an enormous amount online. I think there, there are at least two reasons. One is, yes, the more engagement, the more profit. And content like Trump's that is highly provocative, provokes people, angers them, makes them afraid. And all of those emotions tend to keep people online longer, which is what makes money for the companies. In addition, such content, and by that I mean content that comes from influential people and incites violence and other forms of harm, tends to be expressed in ambiguous language. It's a paradox. They very rarely say, even, even in uh, pre-genocidal situations, go and massacre the Tutsis, or go and massacre the Jews, or go and massacre the Muslims, etc. Um, in case after case, in culture after culture, uh, leaders like that express themselves in ambiguous language. So the staff at platforms like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and so forth spend a tremendous amount of time debating uh, what to do about specific pieces of content. What did Trump and 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 also debating uh, over the intent of the person of the author of the person who posted the content? What did Trump really mean in this case with the looting and shooting tweet? Uh, was he just glorifying violence or was he threatening violence? Had he? Do we think he had heard about the um, American police chief in Miami in 1965 who used very similar language? So was Trump actually referring to this or not? The point is, is that such content is very, very often ambiguous. So then uh, staff at the companies, the content moderation staff, uh, spend a lot of time debating and arguing over how a particular tweet or post um, or video could be understood. And number two, what the author intended. In, in my own view, it would be much better for them to focus on how that content is actually being understood by the people who might go and commit violence. That's a piece that has been greatly neglected so far. I think intent is not very relevant since sometimes people forward content that is highly inflammatory with great intentions. Uh, they think they're, they're protecting their friends and their families and neighbors. They don't intend to, to cause harm to innocent people, uh, but they forward it anyway. And, and secondly, intent is terribly, uh, terribly difficult to discover. So I think it would be so much better for the, for the company staff to focus instead on how the content is actually being understood. Yeah, you made a really great point. I had a kind of follow-up on that. So if we get to this point where there's this sort of ambiguity as to the speech and it becomes this sort of debate, you know, the really divisive debates that we have, hate speech versus freedom of speech, which is where I really want to go with this. Like, that's a huge problem, isn't it? One which you're ideas of dangerous speech really speak into. Yes, and I'm, I'm trying to, among other reasons why I hope this dangerous speech idea is useful, I'm trying to peel people away from this endless debate about hate speech and free speech, which does often more damage than good. In any case, just to come back to this, to, I think it's really a critical point that 
quite a lot of that content is ambiguous. So I, I think that, that the companies hesitated in Trump's case. In fact, I know they hesitated for a number of reasons. I mentioned the profit motive. That's, of course, difficult to, to pin down, but I think it's a pretty safe assumption that the companies desire to maximize what they call engagement. That is to say, the amount of time that we all spend staring at their apps contributes to their hesitation to interfere with a, with a very, very influential, popular content creator, whoever it is. That's true of Trump, and it's true of YouTubers with millions of, of followers. There is also an, another genuine factor, I think, which is that it can be very difficult to decide. Uh, number one, when content is ambiguous, as I said, and number two, it's hard to take on someone who is tremendously influential, whether they're influential because they're president of the one, you know, arguably most powerful country in the world, uh, or because they're a 19-year-old with 20 million followers. It is difficult to take on such a person. It's a fairly basic psychological phenomenon, if you like. And so is there a need for almost a, a, gov a sort of governmental regulator of some kind to step in and apply some form of international human rights standards to? The trouble is, or there are a few troubles, I think, if there were a government regulator, would it be more or less likely to take on a president? It's a really interesting point, yeah. In the vast majority of cases I can think of, a government regulatory body would be even less likely to try to rein in a head of state. So that's, that's a, a very serious problem. Even if you had an intergovernmental body, a supragovernmental body, you know, they'd be made up of people who work for those heads of state. So they might be even more cautious. Regarding 19-year-old YouTube stars, I don't know who would be more or less likely to crack down. That's a really fascinating point. So, I mean, in some ways, these forms of governance that are non-governmental can be useful in regulating governmental actors. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm griping that Facebook took down Trump too late and for the wrong reasons and so forth, but they did take him down. It's, it is, when you, when you take a step back and think about it, it is quite a big deal for anybody to dump a president of the United States of America. Corporations are, are usually inclined to placate somebody who has that much governmental power. Then you have a problem with the elected, the mandate of whether those companies... Nobody elected them. Nobody elected them. There is no representative yeah. anything. Uh, even Facebook's oversight board was not elected. It was chosen by whom? Facebook. Yeah, exactly. So it just so happens that we have quite a benevolent set of tech companies, perhaps, in this one respect? Well, maybe. I mean, compared to what they could be, think, think about the sort of speech regulation that is carried out by many of the governments around the world and the way that they, for example, throw their political opponents in jail, torture them, flog them for saying the wrong thing. Now, that is... Uh, horrifyingly common in the world and probably becoming more common at the moment. So in that context, Facebook's speech regulation 
doesn't look all that bad, you know. They are, I think it's safe to say, trying fairly hard and trying much harder than they used to to get this right. They are uh, also feeling a lot of pressure from governments and from civil society, from users, to work harder at this problem and to get it right. And when, when, you, when you ask about governments, I think, well, yes, it would be good for there to be government regulation as long as that would go better than what's going on now. When legislators have tried to control and direct what happens on the internet so far, it has often gone very poorly, in part because the legislators often are people who don't understand the internet very well at all. But sometimes it has gone well. You know, there are, there are some good stories as well. Exactly. So the crucial piece now is I just wanted to ask about your work with Dangerous Speech, because obviously it's like a really insightful way to stratify this debate in a more sensible way, maybe. So what is your aim in developing the concept of Dangerous Speech? The most prevalent term for describing offensive or harmful content online or offline is, of course, hate speech. Everybody knows the term hate speech, even many people who are using it in languages other than English. However, we do not have a consensus on what it is. I'm willing to bet you that I could give you and nine other people a set of examples of content and ask each of you to say, for each one, is this or is this not hate speech? And you'd all come up with different answers. So that's that's what makes it quite complicated to, to regulate properly. Um, my idea is that, first of all, it's very useful to pay attention to the kind of harm you want to prevent, whether you're a private company regulating speech or a government, or even uh, a group of citizens. You should identify which harms you can't accept and which ones you will tolerate, since any, any would-be regulator will tolerate some forms of harm. If you do that, you will be able to design policies that can reduce the harms you want to reduce much more effectively than if you're not clear about that. For example, you may decide that it's all right for people to be offended in a certain way or to a certain degree, or maybe not. I uh, came up with this concept, dangerous speech, because I was very interested in trying to find effective ways of preventing mass violence between groups of people. That is a very big harm, of course. It's not hard to get people to agree on wanting to prevent that. And as it turns out, I observed that the, the speech that political, religious, and cultural leaders tend to use in a country in the weeks and months and years before an outbreak of mass violence are uncannily similar. They use certain rhetorical techniques in so many languages, in so many cultures, even in so many different historical periods these rhetorical techniques are the same. So I thought, well, it seems to, that, that there's a category here that uh, you'd think that there was some sort of a school someplace where they take these, these, these awful leaders and train them to speak in this way 
that seems to inspire people to condone or commit violence. And by the way, they do that principally, I think, by engendering fear, not hatred. I think fear is the much more operative emotion for all of this. And although, of course, not all of the harmful content online is dangerous speech, thank goodness, I think that, that defining a category by consensus, because people agree that they want to prevent the harm that it, uh, that it inspires, is a way to, to begin to develop consensus on how and when to, to try to diminish the harm that is brought about by online communication, or for that matter, offline communication. After all, there are, just as there are many kinds of harm that online content can inspire, there are also many different kinds of interventions that tech companies can use to proceed against it. Takedown is only one of them. The companies are increasingly using another method, which is to, to hide content from many users in particular circumstances. I'm afraid that's, I, I don't have time really to go into that. But anyway, it's just to make the point that there are lots of different possible interventions. You can try to convince people not to post bad content in the first place. You had in your, in your outline a question about prior censorship, whether international human rights law would, would countenance taking content down even before it is posted, right? I have to say, as a former journalist and as a, as a lawyer with great interest in, uh, in freedom of speech, prior censorship, I have to say, prior censorship gives me hives. And I'd like, I, I, I think um, that it would be prohibited under international human rights law, except in very, very special cases, like instructing people how to make uh, bombs and things like that. Susan, thank you so much for your time this Friday afternoon. Have a great weekend. If you haven't already, don't forget to like and subscribe.